Welcome to this episode of Bar Chat Shorts, where we give you short bits of extra conversation that didn't make it into the longer conversations, but that are way too good not to share with you. This short is inspired by our Bar Chat Highlights episode and focuses on the experience of taste and flavour in drinks. You were talking about how we learn all of our flavour preferences, and I guess that's sort of based on the link between the aromatic qualities of the food and drink we eat and then the nutritional quality of it and that sort of forging a a reward system that says well every time you eat a peach it's sweet and here's 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 another thing we're going to make it sort of smell fruity and and bright and there's going to be a little bit of acidity in there and it's going to have this peach aroma whatever flavor molecules mm. cause or conspire to to create the aroma of peach so we are our preferences on flavor are sort of forged by this link between our aromatic preferences and and and, and sweetness and so on yeah, or, or maybe there are no aromatic preferences to begin with I mean, possibly there's one or two but i think a starting point is to say no it's absolutely all learnt. Mm. um Apart from the ones that our mother was eating, the carrot milk and the mm. uh, and so on and so forth, garlic and whatever else it might be, uh, and it's sort of the other way around that we learn that um, that smell yeah, predicts sugar, fat, uh, caffeine, alcohol, um, and then that smell takes on some of those qualities. This is sort of the amazing thing in a way that about, from some of the gastrophysics is if you think about the smell of vanilla, the smell of uh, uh, of caramel. Most people would call those sweet smells. Mm. Oh, this is great. I'm so glad you got onto this because I've got a long-standing debate with friends about whether or not you can smell sweet. So I'm going to ask (laughs) you to give me the answer. Okay. (laughs) um, uh, And yeah, of course, vanilla pods, when you bite into them, uh, are very bitter. Uh, But we sort of learned through experience that 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 probably artificial vanilla smell, more often than not, normally comes with sweetness, maybe an ice cream. and, And then that smell becomes, for us, sweet um, and in a way that none of our other senses kind of do that. that it's smells, association, the right? Yeah. It just it's like but, becomes such a powerful association. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but, but it's an association. So they can say, okay, when I, when I smell vanilla, I know I'm going to taste sweetness in a moment or two. But beyond that, it's also um, that the uh, the vanilla starts to become sweet itself. It starts to smell sweet. And when you add it to something that's not very sweet, by adding that smell of vanilla, it can actually make the thing taste sweeter. Hmm. And that's so that, and that's purely down to the strength of the association, sort of building like a, an anticipation in the brain, this expectation that it's going to be sweet, even when it isn't. That's right. Um, so our brain, I guess, what it is is I mean, pretty ultimately, it's your tongue that tells you some of what's in the food we eat, whether it's poisonous and should be ejected because it tastes bitter. Uh, uh, it contains energy because it tastes sweet or uh, umami sort of a protein. Um, so ultimately, you should put everything in our mouth, but that's just kind of a messy business and take too long to stick everything around us in our mouth and see what it tastes like. Mm. So our brain tries to predict what things are going to be taste of, what nutritional value they have before, um, but based on color, which is why you know, pink and red are such powerful uh, uh, cues to sweetness, because in sort of fruits mm. uh, in nature, but also in the supermarket, that color very often occurs with sweetness. So I see pink, I'm expecting sweet. And then when I taste something, I can't. you can't turn water into wine by colouring it pinkish red, but you can take a slightly sweet drink and make it appear perceived indistinguishable from an actually sweeter drink 
because it smells sweet, because it looks sweet. For me, it's about being really adventurous and curious when it comes to flavor, right? I think that um, obviously when you're in this industry and you, and it, let's say you were not exposed to a lot, like I feel like I have a very um, quote unquote sophisticated palate because I was exposed to many different flavors from early on. And I was, I, I, I was that kid that was forced to eat, not in a bad way, but like my mom would be like, try it. You're not allowed to say no, try it try it and it wasn't until i would try it and and i i do like your theory that you said earlier about trying something several times because that um that is something we used to do with the kids maybe you don't like it today but maybe you would like it tomorrow um mm -hmm. so i think that it is a balance of 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 certain things it is a balance of being really adventurous and, and just kind of um especially if you're going to be a chef or a mixologist um you you would do because i think that these days um a mixologist should be like a sommelier should be able to tell you look this cocktail goes beautiful with this food uh, and i think that more and more we have to start making that connection i i think that that is part of like the evolution of of having a i love it when i'm when i'm at a bar and a mixologist says you know what are you what are you going to eat uh, and i can have one cocktail to start off with but what are you going to eat and then they say oh i recommend you this cocktail with this dish i love that and i think that and, and I think for you to be able to do that, you have to be very adventurous of, of having, opening up your palate and saying yes to flavors and saying, you know what, even if I don't love it, I'm going to try it. I'm going to try it different ways. And I'm, let's say, for example, I mean, oysters, for example, I'm going to try it with lime and then I'm going to try it with hot sauce and then I'm going to try it. You know, it doesn't have to be oysters, but you get the point of just kind of like really opening up your palate. Do you think, I mean, it feels like we're getting... Chefs and bartenders getting closer. We're we're starting to see more collaborations. Ryan, what you did at Cub um, was sort of the closest, really. I've seen the kind of food and drink thing come together. The closest I've seen personally, anyway. And I, I know that there are chefs now who are kind of managing drinks programs in restaurants. Um, is this? I, I, do you, Do you think this is something we're going to see more of? And do you think we're going to see more bartenders gravitating towards food as well, and perhaps opening restaurants? Um, I mean, from from my perspective, um, I, I've never differentiated. I, I I see them as the same thing. Um, food and drink to me are are one and the same. Um, it's you know, if, if I think about the spaces that we create, it's more about trying to find ways of of bringing people together. And food and drink are one of the many tools, alongside the music, the lighting, the atmosphere, all of those things that we're trying to control. Um, and so, to me, it's always been about. You know, I, I think we should be looking to learn from everyone. James, do you reckon we could be sort of living through that period in coffee where, you know, it's best left untouched or perhaps with, you know, some decent milk skills, you can mix that into your espresso, but otherwise, please don't sweeten it, please don't do anything else. And maybe in five or 10 years time, we'll start to see more of this a revolution in in good quality mixed coffee drinks, whether they be alcoholic or otherwise? You know, at, at this point, we're probably still at a phase where we can be a bit precious about the product. And, you know, like, I don't want to mix this or this doesn't adequately express its terroir or its nuance or its taste of place in this mixed drink and therefore it is flawed or, or you know. And I, I think that's probably a mistake to, to go too far down that route. You know, I think coffee on a very technical level, I guess, is, an, is a difficult ingredient because it's mostly water. And water 
by and large is not something you want an enormous amount of poured into the middle of a cocktail. And so, you know, I, I think if you're talking about taking brewed coffee of some sort and integrating it into cocktails, I think that's really, really difficult. Um, I, I, I think coffee can can play a role as an ingredient in a drink that you know a little bit like we just talked about like it, it, one of those things i really like coffee cocktails where i don't know the coffee's in there unless i really look for it and then i can see where it's there i can see the space that it's filling in terms of flavor or texture or or taste i guess in another way but ultimately the kind of gestalt the the, the finished drink is delicious in and of itself and and you know you're not thinking about what's what's individually got into it you're just thinking do i do i like drinking this drink you know mm, i think as any good cocktail should be really regardless of whether right. it's got coffee in it the whole yeah. point is to make this finished you know balanced thing that doesn't taste of any one thing too much that that is this new you know that to me is a classic cocktail those are those drinks that have achieved you know a, a kind of coca-cola-esque balance of flavor where you don't you know what what does coca-cola taste of most people could not mm. tell you that you know what i mean they're not picking apart lime or orange and aroli or all those ridiculous oils um you know so i think coffee has a role there i think coffee i'm a big fan of um trying to bypass water as much as possible i i, I do like coffee infused into booze i like the different flavor profile you get from using alcohol as a solvent um you know, I, th I think there's this space to play with it there and introduce it in a way that isn't the same kind of dilutionary problem. What what is the what what would you say is the different kind of flavor extraction you get from um, alcohol infusion over water with coffee? I, I I don't know if you can speak in broad sweeping generalizations. You, you definitely get a different bitterness profile, and I think from that perspective, I've historically been a fan of things like milk washing, coffee infusions, because I do think that that little bit of milk does help mop up some of those additional bitterness sort of additional bitter characteristics you get from kind of coffee infusions into booze i think you do get a slightly broader aromatic spectrum from it you know what i mean like um if you do full um oil infusions so if you go all the way into sort of non-polar are we going down this route here is this <laughs> okay, fine um if you go all the way into the sort of fully non-polar flavor compounds, you get a lot of the flavors that, that remind you of how coffee smells when it grinds. You know, there's a gap between how coffee mm. smells when you grind it and how it tastes when you mm. brew it. There's a little, there's a piece missing there. And probably a good part of that is just simply not water soluble, um, but they are oil soluble. And you do get a little bit more of that with alcohol. If you're in a strong enough, you know, if your alcohol percentage is high enough in your infusion liquid, um, so yeah, you get a slightly fuller profile, but you will get more bitterness as well. Typically, I find there's a bit more attack and harshness up front on a straight infusion that needs to be moderated in some way before it goes into a finished drink. Thank you for listening to this Bar Chat short. If you enjoyed it, be sure to check out the full size episode, which includes more conversation from some of my favorite guests. And don't forget to like and subscribe. <laughs>